Welcome to the Doodle Kisses podcast, an extension of doodlekisses.com. I'm your host, Adina Pearson. Doodlekisses.com is the social network for Labradoodle and Golden Doodle owners, wannabe owners, and the Doodle Curious. The goal of this podcast is to provide education, entertainment, and connect with our Doodle Kisses members on the topic of Labradoodles, Golden Doodles, and dogs in general. My guest today is Ian Stone, a New York dog trainer who I found on YouTube. I just loved what he had to say about puppy nipping so much that I figured he'd be a great guest on the topic of raising puppies. He's a certified professional dog trainer by the Certifying Council on Professional Dog Trainers. He's pet CPR certified, an AKC certified canine good citizen evaluator, and involved in several other doggy organizations. I really loved my conversation with Ian because we covered some very important aspects of raising well-balanced dogs starting in puppyhood. We covered socialization and the importance of introducing novelty as well as the concept of protected socialization, puppy biting and why puppies have to bite in order to learn how to live in our world, why decreasing the intensity of an unwanted behavior is necessary before we look at decreasing the frequency. We touch on shy puppies and we address one of the most common complaints people have about dogs, jumping on guests. You are going to enjoy this episode. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Dina. How are you? I'm good. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. I wanted to tell people how I discovered you, um, as if I've discovered you, but I was Googling puppy biting, or maybe I wasn't even Googling puppy biting, but I was on YouTube, something about dogs, and your video came up, and I thought, oh, I'm going to check it out. And I really like the way you presented the whole puppy biting perspective and why it's not a bad thing, like why it's not bad that puppies do that. And as well as you pointed out some things about how to deal with it that I hadn't heard before. And so it got me intrigued. And I thought, well, he might have some other great ideas for puppy owners. So I'm going to have him on the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Super. (laughs) Thank you. So I'm curious, just in general, what is, what is your dog story? How did, you know, were you somebody who loved dogs since you came out of the womb or was it a discovery later in life? Uh, it was a little bit of both. It was, uh, kind of an innate thing and then a rediscovery later in life. So, uh, I mean, I grew up with dogs. I always had dogs, uh, a lot of chow chows, uh, some Norwegian elk hounds, uh, some pretty, I, I mean, I just have really fond, fond memories of the dogs that I grew up with. I was pretty close to them. Uh, and you know, there's things that happened when I, in my childhood that in retrospect seem to make sense now, you know, like I remember going over to my girlfriend's house for a pool party when I was 16 and, uh, I met her dog out in the driveway and like a half hour later, everybody came out and goes like, uh, are you going to come in? Like, what are we doing? <laughs> you know? And now in retrospect, I'm like, uh, you know, that, <laughs> that kind of makes sense. And then, uh, you know, after I graduated high school and went to college and, you know, started a career and a family and all that kind of jazz, I kind of got away from it. And then, um, interestingly enough, when I was in England, uh, they had a whole bunch of English bulldog stuff because they just love English bulldogs there. And I'm like, oh my God, they're hilarious. They're so funny. And then, mm-hmm. uh, when I moved to, uh, upstate New York, 
in like 2006, I think, you know, I had a nice house and I'm like, okay, you know what? I think it's time to get my own dog again. I think it's time to get back into it. And I was like, oh my God, what have I been missing? Because as soon as I got him, uh, then it just snowballed from there and I got more dogs and got back into dogs and just, it was just awesome. (laughs) And what kind of dogs do you have now? So I have uh, two bulldogs. Uh, I have uh, a Jack Russell and I have a Boston Terrier. Uh, and we've lost a Boston Terrier. Um, and so Olive, we've had, this is the, my Boston Terrier right now. Uh, we've only had her for about years now. Mm-hmm. What do you like about Bulldogs and Boston Terriers? Because you have the opposite dog tastes from our owners. <laughs> <laughs> Big, furry, slobbery dogs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I just, they're so silly uh and loving and affectionate and i just love all the snorty and party <laughs> and, i mean they're just comedians uh and boston's i think are the same they're just the more athletic cousins you know mm-hmm. they're just they, every day they just crack me up with their hijinks and and they're smart in their own ways you know some people like you know your your shepherds and your and your uh, border collies and things like that. And I feel like those are the kinds of dogs as a trainer I'm supposed to really like. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I love working with those dogs. I have a few Belgian Malinois in some classes and I just adore those dogs. And someday I think I'd like to get one. But, you know, right now, just these knuckleheads, just they keep me in stitches all the time. And that's just, <laughs> I, I'm fine with that. <laughs> yeah, you don't really, I mean, any dog can be trained for the most part, but you don't really think of bulldogs and Bostons as like obedience champions, although they might be, I don't know. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, so there's uh, there's video out there of a Boston Terrier doing uh, IPO, doing protection work, and he's competing. Really? Yeah, and it's hilarious because, you know, he jumps up and he grabs a bad guy and he's just literally hanging three feet oh. off the ground off this guy. But <laughs> he did great. He did great. <laughs> well, that's awesome. So is that the kind of, like, do you do much competition with your dogs or any particular dog sports? Uh, you know, I've dabbled in nose work uh, and rally obedience. Uh, mm-hmm. And again, I think, I feel like the expectation is that I'm supposed to do a bunch of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I do some of it, but I really just gravitate towards the fun stuff. Like I do rally with um, one of my bulldogs and nose work with my boss carrier. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I got to be honest with you too. The other side of it is this. I am so busy with my own dog training business that I just, I just literally don't have time for any more than that. Right. right. <laughs> you know, if I had more time, we would probably do more stuff. Um, my dogs have their canine good citizens and their advanced canine good citizens, of course. But anything more technical than that, um, we just do for fun when we have time. Yeah. And I can see, you know, being a trainer and, and feeling confident that you could get things done. If something's not a problem, it would be easy to be like, well, I'm fine with my dog and I'll you know, keep busy with my job, training other people's dogs or training other people to train their dogs. <laughs> precisely. Precisely. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to know, if, in your opinion, as a dog trainer, what is, why train your dog? What's the purpose? If someone's thinking, well, I don't want to compete and my dog's generally okay, nothing, you know, why, why participate in training at all? That's a great question, actually. I wish more people would ask that. <laughs> so uh, training, I think, 
you got to look at it this way. So even though dogs have spent several thousands of years adapting to life with humans, I think that we take for granted that they just make that transition seamlessly. And we forget that at the end of the day, they're still animals, right? Mm -hmm. And so adapting to life in a human household is challenging for them. You know, they're, I mean, take potty training, for example. Like potty training is a completely alien concept to a dog. I mean, their only rule is don't poop where you eat. You know, Mm -hmm. it's pass or fail. And so then we come in with this whole thing. Well, no, 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 no. You have to pay attention to when and where. And it's like, why? You know, yeah. uh, and so convincing them that it's in their best interest and helping them integrate uh, into human society. It's just like, you know, uh, taking a, a foreign exchange student into your home. So, you know, training uh, helps families make that integration uh, much more efficient, efficiently, much more expediently, uh, much more thoroughly. Uh, and then it helps the dogs develop good character traits that carry over into other parts of their lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, the, you know, the benefit I think everybody understands is just that if you work with your dog and you develop a, a good working and playing relationship, then, uh, I mean, that just increases your bond in general. You know, yeah, I think you want a buddy. This is how you make it. <laughs> right, right. They think of it as like command obedience. And while definitely that's awesome, um, I think a lot of people forget it's a great way to bond with your dog. And you had meant, you know, as far as like integrating into a human household, I think that's such an important point because so many people think of, and we, our audience is primarily Labradoodle and Golden Doodle dog owners. And a lot of these doodle owners, me included, when I started, were first-time dog owners. So we didn't really have much experience with dogs. And you see this cuddly teddy bear looking thing. And it's easy to think of this dog as a like a little living teddy bear or fur baby. You know, a lot of people call their dogs my little fur baby. And it's easy to forget they're still a dog. <laughs> they still have their canine. They have instincts and needs that aren't going to fit into like a toddler's <laughs> needs or yes. Pet, um, yes, a toy. The other thing that you reminded me of as you were speaking was I was just talking to somebody else who does some obedience competition with their dogs and how they had taught a go-to command where they can like point their hand at something, or I think it's go to cone or cone or something like that. I think that's in rally, but I'm not sure. Anyway, they can direct their hand in a direction at a thing and their dog will go and sit by it. And I was thinking, you know, I've never taught my dogs that, but my dogs understand hand signals in a general way. So if I'm like, go over there and I'm pointing them somewhere, um, I'm directing my finger at a location, they kind of follow it. You know, if I'm turning Uh my finger around, they're going to follow it, not because I have a treat, but they've learned that. And she mentioned, you know, I think it's because we've both done a lot of training with our dogs. And so they they think in relationship to us and what our hands are doing. And I think, wow, that's so cool. It's not something I've actively taught. And I've been frustrated when I've had a foster or a visiting dog and I'm trying to like get them to go in a direction out of my way or whatever, you know, just trying to move them, help them navigate my house and they'd have no clue. They don't even look at my hand. (laughs) And I'm like, how do you not know this? This (laughs) Right. Why don't you know the lingo? (laughs) Exactly. How do you not know to follow a person's hand? Anyway, so I was pleased. I'm like, oh, that's cool. My dogs have learned to think of things in relationship to me. So I like Yeah, precisely. You're exactly right. Yeah. And they've learned to decode, you know, your 
way of presenting the world too. You know, your, your friend or your neighbor might take your dog and like, Oh, you know, her dog's really well trained. Let's see what we can do. And they're going to look at your neighbor going like, what? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Um, so I want to jump in back and not back, but into puppyhood, right? A lot of people get their dogs as puppies. And I know that when I got my first puppy, I read and read and online and I got Ian Dunbar's books because that was what was recommended at the time. Mm-hmm. And I was so prepared. I had an X-Pen with a crate inside of it and a little like grass. I actually went out and got um, sod and put it in a Tupperware yeah. and was like, I'm ready. And I knew what to do about, you know, supposedly to do about nipping but it all fell apart. Like the reality was that I was totally overwhelmed and this puppy that was otherwise super mellow started jumping and growling at me and I'd take it on a walk and it would attack my ankles and I was embarrassed. I thought, what am I going to do? It's attacking me (laughs) and our car (laughs) is going to stop and help. Like, I don't know. I can't, if I step on its leash, it can still reach me. Help. So the reality was quite different than what I expected as far as nipping uh, was concerned. And he happened to last like a whole year. Like when he turned a year, our training finally worked and he quit biting me. And that was, Uh, and uh that's a long time. And he was a big dog. But anyway, I don't mean to go off on that tangent. What are the most important things that a puppy needs to learn in its first few weeks at home that people might not be prepared for? Or, you know, maybe they're trying to teach their dog to sit for treats, but maybe that's not the most important thing those first few weeks. Right, right, right. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I would say, I would say the first thing is to understand, or I guess not to understand, is to not underestimate the amount of time and dedication a puppy takes. Right? Uh, I think, I think in general, the feeling that I get from most folks is they expect dogs to be kind of like a kitchen appliance. You know, like <laughs> I bought it, I brought it home, and like, why doesn't it work? What? Where's the instructions? Like, right. you know, uh, and things take time to evolve and to cultivate, uh, you know, and you have to plant the seeds and nurture and sow uh, before you can reap and reward. So for puppies, what's the most important thing? Well, uh, I would say the most important things is potty training. Uh, that's probably one of the number one things that people complain about with any newly adopted dog of any age is potty training. Um, so getting a pretty solid plan with that is super important. Um, and then I would say functional socialization and uh, working on your bite inhibition are probably the most important and the most time sensitive things you have on your plate. Um, and you made a great point about like obedience pieces. You know, you should start some obedience, minor obedience pieces with a puppy, but Real honestly, those things kind of take, I think they should take the back burner, to be perfectly honest. I agree. I agree so much. And I'm going to interrupt you just because I see this in dog forums a lot where people will show their like nine or 10 week old puppy sitting on command and laying down and they're like, wow, my puppy's so smart. And what I would always goes through my mind is, you know, that's cool. Like you do fun things with your puppy and but I'm going to bet you that if you stop in the next few weeks because your puppies learned this, they're going to not do any of this at six months. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> be totally. prepared that this is all going to get washed out when they realize that, oh, I have other options. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Anyway, so, <laughs> well, so you know, and then it, it's frustrating for me as a consultant, as a professional consultant to go to people's houses, you know, and they're struggling with things that should have been sewn up six months ago. But 
look, he can shake and he can uh-huh. sit and he can do this. So he can play dead. And I'm like, what use is that stuff? <laughs> exactly. My little toddler can rattle the toy. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so here I made, I've made lists before of things that I think are important for those first few weeks. And you can tell me if you agree or if you would add anything or take anything away. So sure. potty training for sure. Mm-hmm. Being comfortable with confinement or the crate, like learning Mm -hmm. to tolerate that. Mm -hmm. Being comfortable on leash, not so much walking properly, but like not freaking out that there's a leash attached. Mm -hmm. Handling, like being comfortable, being having paws handled and touched and brushed and groomed and all those things. Bite inhibition, absolutely. And socialization. Yeah, that's that's Mm -hmm. my list. And I think if that's a lot, that's a lot of stuff. Oh, yeah, that'll keep busy people busy. Yeah, all the obedience stuff can come as the puppy is more mature and able to like learn around distractions too. Yeah, well, see, and now the important piece there, uh, and your list is great, the important piece, remember, is that obedience is not time sensitive. Like you can do obedience and get it to a pretty high level at any point almost in a dog's life. Uh, whereas things like your bite inhibition and your socialization you know, the clock is ticking on those things. And if you don't get them right by certain developmental periods, like you'll never get it to what it could be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you may potentially have, I mean, not to be an alarmist and sound like I'm trying to scare everybody, but you could potentially have lifelong problems because, you know, they're not things that you can do at any point. Well, let's dive into that. Pick one, <laughs> um, either bite inhibition or socialization. And and talk to us a little bit about what that means, practically speaking. Sure. So like take socialization, for example. Um, and so you mentioned uh, socialization and handling. Um, I'm not splitting hairs, but I would lump those things in with socialization. Like yeah. handling is a part of my socialization. So getting a puppy confident and stable around novel situations, around different kinds of people and dogs and noises and environment, like that. Uh, so, I mean, canine brain science uh, has pretty unequivocally shown in the last, I mean, Jesus, they've been doing it for like six years now. Um, you know, you have really the proximal ages are about between 12 and 16 weeks. weeks. Uh, so, I mean, puppies start socializing from the day they're born uh, with their litters and their uh, breeding environment. Uh, and then as soon as they come home with you, but if you haven't done the bulk of that work before 16 weeks, like you've already messed up, uh, you can still make up some lost ground. Um, but like by then it's like red alert, you know, uh, then you're going to have dogs that uh, struggle with different kinds of things uh, for a long, long time, sometimes their whole lives. Uh, And I know that sounds alarmist, you know, and the problem is, is that there's always going to be anomalies. There's going to always going to be outliers, you know, that, uh, oh, hey, I brought this puppy home and he, I rescued it from a puppy mill and he wasn't socialized at all. Look, he's great. Publicly take him everywhere. And I'm like, okay, but that's the exception, not the rule. You know, I tell my clients all the time, I'm like, you know, there's people that smoke their whole lives and don't get lung cancer. It doesn't mean we're wrong when we say you shouldn't smoke, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know? You can get lucky. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, And the same with bite inhibition. Bite inhibition, the brain chemistry starts changing for that between 18 weeks and six months. Uh, If you have a nine-month-old dog and you haven't worked on your bite inhibition and he's, you know, 
leaving bruises and punctures, you're, you're in a pickle for sure. So what would you say, you know, if you were to pick three areas or activities for socializing an eight to 12 week old puppy, what, what kinds of things would you want to be sure owners do besides handling? So we'll say that's part of it, but Mm -hmm. outside of that, like, do they need to go out to the park or to stores or have 10 kids come over and play with it or what kinds of things? Right. Right. Yeah. Well, so, um, I think in, if you think in terms of just as many novel situations as you can, novelty is the key with socialization. Mm -hmm. Uh, So try to think of things that the puppy has not been exposed to and then expose them to the puppy sensitively, supportively, and make it as great of an experience as you can. Um, So the problem with socialization that you usually run into then is you get pushback from the vaccination schedule, right? Mm And so then you have a lot of vets that uh, are still kind of thinking like, well, no, you can't take your puppy out of the house until they get the third shot. Uh, and then all the behavioralists and the veterinary behaviorists are like, you know, <laughs> you've already messed up by that. You can't wait that long. So how do we compromise? How do we uh, reconcile that? And so one of the ways that we can do that is we can do protected socialization. So for example, if you take your puppy to the park, uh, and they've only had their first or second shot, well, then you can't set them down in the grass because there's stuff in the grass, right? That's dangerous. But mm-hmm. you could have the puppy uh, in a carrier or just holding them in your arms or in a wagon or a cart or something so that they get to see the people and hear the noises and smell the grass and uh, see the birds and the trees and all these different things. Hear the traffic, hear the construction around the corner, hear the sirens going by. Uh, and then you have a nice time. You, you, know, you feed them lunch while they're there with you, and then you leave. And so you've got to do the socialization without exposing them to you know, uh, pathogens. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then as you kind of climb up your shot schedule, you can start getting more worldly. You know, by the time you've had the second shot, most vets uh, recommend that the puppy's immune system has started to convert. So you can do things like uh, stores and uh, other things like that, where they have to be a little bit more worldly with meeting the public in different places. Uh, and then, like you said, inviting people over. That's a fantastic uh, idea. Ian Dunbar always talks about having puppy parties, you know, like uh, call 10 of your friends and be like, hey, I got a puppy. Why is everybody coming over for beer and pizza? Bring your kids. It's fantastic, you know. Uh, and then we just uh, have a nice time. People play with the puppy and uh, and uh, then the puppy goes, wow, you know, uh, it's a lot of people. It was a little overwhelming sometimes, but it was overall pretty fun. Yeah. Uh, so I think socialization sounds like it, it could potentially be overwhelming, but you know, it doesn't have to be. It's That's just uh, bringing the dog into life. You know, yeah, if yeah. you if you never want to take your dog out of your house, then that's all it needs to learn. Although that's probably not a good idea either. In case for any reason the dog ever needs a new home, <laughs> then then it needs right. nothing. Right. Um, the one thing about socialization that I also see is I get the impression that people think socialization with other dogs is equivalent to meeting and playing with every dog they see so Mm -hmm. that you know socialization is always playing with and my opinion and you can throw out you know whether you agree and why or why not is that 
socialization with other dogs can mean just being okay in the presence of them. It doesn't mean that they have to interact with every dog and maybe not interacting with every dog teaches a little impulse control too, so that they don't expect to pull on leash toward every dog. Mm -hmm. Um, What are your thoughts? Well, you have to, you're, you're right, but you got to find a radical middle ground with that. uh, Sure. They have to play too. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So the play is an integral part of that developmental process. So, I mean, they absolutely have to have opportunity to play with other puppies and friendly adult dogs, but you're right. Uh, there has to be a balance. So yes, we have to develop impulse control. Uh, and yes, I want, I want my dog to become comfortable around other dogs and enjoy the company of the dog, but I don't want my dog to become dysfunctionally obsessed with other dogs, right? At the expense mm-hmm. of their engagement with me. And that happens, you know, people that uh, like, uh, oh, my dog goes to daycare five or six days a week, you know? And then anytime there's a canine within 10 miles, your dog, <laughs> you don't exist anymore, <laughs> uh-huh. you know? Yeah. Uh, and that's problematic because you've gone completely the other direction. So, you know, you're right. Uh, uh, I would say the other end of that stick, though, is that um, people tend to us underestimate it, too. So, you know, I have conversations well, like, oh, yeah, my dog socialized. We have another dog or, you know, mm. my sister brings over a couple of dogs. And I'm like, that's not socialization. You know, I mean, if you'd met a kid, if you'd met a nine year old kid who'd only ever met one other person like that kid would be weird. Right. <laughs> Right. <laughs> so, you know, you have to give them robust experiences besides just their tiny little microcosm. Because, yeah. you know, that's why we send kids to kindergarten. <laughs> mm-hmm. And if you homeschool, you get together with other families so that they've experienced other humans besides their right. siblings. Yeah, right. totally. Exactly. Yep. What about the, the puppy that's just kind of shyer and slower to warm up to other dogs, other people? Like, how do you protect them. You mentioned protected socialization, give them that, you know, safety net without what people might think of as coddling or over reassuring. I would say the play opportunities is the fix for that too. So, um, so for example, I run a lot of puppy classes. Uh, My puppy classes are predominantly off leash. We have some on leash training too, because they got to learn how to work on leash too. But uh, we do probably at least a half to two thirds of every class off leash. Um, and so we always have kind of that mix. You know, you got some dogs that are in the middle, most of them are in the middle, some dogs that are overbearing, and then some dogs that are completely wallflowers. They're totally shy. So uh, what happens is you just make it a supportive experience and a sensitive experience. So we have a good sized room, the wallflowers hang out under the chairs. Uh, for the first couple of sessions. And all we do is do some classical conditioning. A dog comes by, uh, we stick a piece of food in their mouth, and they think, man, every time a dog comes by, something nice happens. And then we don't really pressure them to interact. We just let them watch the group play, watch the group play. And then a funny thing happens. You know, uh, a couple of dogs drive by, then they stretch out to see them as they go by. And then they venture out from the chair, and then they might dart back in. And then They'll come out a little farther and then they'll come out and they'll run around the group and then go back under the chair when they've had too much. Usually by week three or four, like they're running the class, <laughs> you know, uh, they just uh, need that opportunity to approach the play group sensitively in their own time. 
uh, and to have a good time since a, a good experience while they're doing it. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, that goes back to what we were talking about before. It's, it's a process, you know, you have to cultivate it. You know, you can't just go and be like, Oh, it doesn't work. He's too shy. You'd be like, well, let's, let's see what little dude does. Let's yeah. see what little dude does, you know? So it's kind of, um, off providing a safe place for them to choose to retreat to rather than you like saying, it's okay. It's okay. Like constantly petting or reassuring or pushing them forward. You know, they have right. a little place to watch from so that they can get comfortable with what's happening. And then finally their yeah. curiosity gets the better of them and they start to feel more right. comfortable. Right. Yeah. And I, I, I know I don't, I mean, I tell my, my students in those classes, it's okay to comfort your dog, but you got to do it the right way. So like you were saying, you don't want to be like, oh, honey, it's okay. It's okay. Shh, it's okay. Because you're just telling them it's right to be afraid. Uh-huh. You know, uh, I always kind of, I always kind of frame it like you're taking your nephew through a haunted house, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the kid is like, <laughs> there's zombies here. And you're like, buddy, it's not, a, it's okay. It's not a big deal. I, come on, we'll do this together, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so they can see that you're projecting kind of strength and, and confidence, you know? And if they go into the chair, you're like, okay, no sweat. Take a minute. Mm-hmm. You're okay. Come out when you're ready. We'll be here. I've been having a lot of fun doing these podcasts, interviewing interesting people, learning along with you, I don't really want to stop. However, producing a podcast takes time and money. I'm willing to put in the time, but I don't have podcast production skills. And so we have to pay for a professional to put these podcasts together. This is where you come in. If you're getting anything out of listening to these podcasts, please consider supporting the Doodle Kisses podcast. If every single person who listened to at least one episode gave $1, we could cover the production of several episodes. If you gave $5, well, we'd be done fundraising for the year. Go check out our GoFundMe page. The link is in our show notes. Now back to the learning. Can we jump to puppy biting and nipping? Yeah. Tell yeah. me, tell us, tell the audience about, you know, why puppies do this, you know, why it's not something to, to think is bad. And then some of your philosophy on how to address it. Sure. So uh, I think it's important to note uh, that there's two separate variables in a dog's brain developmentally. So there's uh, bite inhibition and bite threshold. Uh, we mostly care about bite inhibition for the long term. Mm-hmm. So briefly, bite inhibition describes how hard a dog uses their mouth uh, to control their environment under stress. Bite threshold describes how often they use their mouth under stress. Now, the important part for, part for us in this discussion is that bite threshold, which is essentially frequency, can be taught almost any time. Uh, bite inhibition, which is force, cannot that's the big piece that changes between 18 weeks and six months so you have to teach that dog how to limit the force of their bite uh how do puppies learn that well they learn that by using their mouth so they have to learn their mouth in order to develop that mental skill uh so puppies uh bite 
when they play. They play bite. They play fight. Uh, they go through all the rehearsals of things that would be uh, forbidden as an adult to do uh, in polite company. Uh, so they growl and they lunge and they show their teeth and they <laughs> clamp onto things. Uh, but it's all it's all BS, you know. Uh, and other puppies know this, and other adult dogs know this. And so uh, what they're looking for is feedback. And this is why puppies have such sharp little needle teeth. It's because they have weak little jaw muscles and they need to be able to get a reaction. So uh, they're playing with their playmate. Uh, they nip their playmate too hard. Uh, the playmate cries out. Play stops momentarily. And nobody wants play to stop. So they're like, oh, okay, well, I, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't get my friends as hard next time. Uh, same with the adults. They play with the adults. The adults will put up with it for a moment. And then the adult kind of, the puppy's like, whoa, geez, okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That was too much. And the, the adult is like, okay, I'm not mad at you. Just don't get me that hard next time. So over time, the puppy accumulates this data and then they develop uh, an unconscious kind of limiting uh, with the force of their mouth so that when they have strong adult jaw muscles, uh, and let's say they're asleep in the living room and your nephew comes over and steps on it. When they wake up out of sleep, all frightened, uh, a dog with good bite inhibition might not even make contact. And if he does, it's just, there's nothing, maybe a red mark. Whereas a dog with poor bite inhibition that has not learned these things is probably going to do some damage. And so uh, it's important to get that stuff dialed in and allow the puppies to have that experience get that feedback so they develop that limiting and then they become safe adults. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's why we do a lot of the, like I said, my classes are off leash because we allow them to do that. And I coach my clients on, you know, uh, what to watch for, what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. And to say like, this process takes time. You have to teach force before frequency. Mm -hmm. If you're stopping your puppy from biting, they're not learning how to use their mouth properly. Boy, that's a tough thing because it is because it hurts. Yeah, yeah, it because hurts. that system was designed by Mother Nature to be a dog dog system, not a dog human system. And so mm -hmm. now that we've chosen to bring puppies into our home, uh, that is the unfortunate, uh, <laughs> the unfortunate result of that is that we have to endure that process. Yeah. And what struck me in your video is. I'd always learned that, you know, you say, ouch, and you walk away or you somehow remove yourself from the puppy, which is really awkward to do. But what you had mentioned is, you know, while you're playing with a puppy, you scream ouch or whatever, and you put your hand back in the puppy's mouth, not back, but you, uh, you don't take it away. You don't remove it. You give them an op another opportunity so that they can learn, you know, a softer bite. And I thought, right. oh, that's interesting. Um, I kind of like that approach, but what it, what if you're like washing dishes and the puppy's biting at your ankles? <laughs> sure. Yeah. So uh, a lot of the problems in a household with a puppy, um, just stem from the fact that there's just not enough confinement. So you have to have a pretty hyper-structured environment while you have the puppy and that's temporary while it's puppy. It's the same thing that we do with, with human babies, right? We put mm -hmm. locks on the cabinets, we put baby gates on the stairs and in rooms and stuff with the understanding that this is the temporary situation, because once you have a five or a six year old, like you don't have to do that stuff. Uh, we have to do those kinds of things with puppies. They, they cannot be allowed to have all, all access pass to your entire house. Uh, they can't be allowed to get into things unsupervised. So if your puppy, if you're standing there washing the dishes and the puppy's nipping at your heels, 
that probably puppy probably just shouldn't be in there with you <laughs> while you're <laughs> you can't supervise or deal with the puppy. You know, mm-hmm. that'd be like, sweetheart, you're gonna go in your pen with some toys and you're gonna hang out while mommy does dishes. That's just the way it has to be, Peanut, you know? Or mm-hmm. another family member takes the puppy and does something with them in another room or something like that. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, uh, if you have the opportunity and you can make it a teachable moment, then you should absolutely do all that stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. Cry out even when they grab your jeans. They don't know the difference between skin and pants yeah. uh, or hair or shoelaces. Uh, so, you know, if a puppy grabs your pants, ow, 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 that hurt, you know? And they back off. And you're like, hey, great job, little puppy. Thank you so much. And then they're like, oh, my God. Humans are so sensitive. I got to be so careful. Uh, that's a valuable lesson. I, you know, I think it's one of those things where you have to just practice and practice and, and it's, and it's what's hard. I think for most people is that it doesn't stop it right away. It may not make them have gentle, super gentle mouths right away. And so it feels really defeating if it, right. if does, if things don't change and you think, okay, well, I did this three times and my puppy's still hurting me. So now I'm going to try to pinch its cheeks. Okay. That didn't work. So now I'm going to squirt it. Now I'm going to, right. And I think that's where things just go crazy. And I know I experienced that myself because yep. my my nipper wasn't like a typical nipper. He only did it to me, not my husband, who was my boyfriend at the time. Um, we didn't have kids around for him to do it too. So it only happened to me and it was random. And it was like, it always seemed really harsh, like mean and aggressive, especially when he got, because he was a 80 to hundred pound dog as an adult. So you can imagine a 10 month old that's like, you know, 80, 90 pounds jumping on you, which is pretty high. And it was just at random times. It wasn't, you know, like the little tiny puppy just, you know, playfully doing it. So I, I, I think I had an outlier in some ways Uh and training other things just eventually worked. And eventually he just played with our other dogs that way. But anyway, sometimes it just feels like nothing works. And I'm wondering, how do you know when something's working, but it just needs more time and consistency versus, okay, this isn't working. We've got to change our approach. Yeah. Yeah. Great question. With biting, especially, um, and honestly, with any annoying behavior that you're working with, with a dog, whether it's barking or jumping or, you know, fence fighting or reactivity, uh, and especially puppy biting, the secret is to make sure that your mindset is geared towards intensity before frequency. That's a really important key. So the intensity of the problem you're dealing with will diminish before the frequency does. And so your dog or puppy will do that thing as often as they always have for quite a while. Mm-hmm. But can you say that the intensity is decreasing? And if you can, you're moving in the right direction. That's the proper progression. So puppy biting, which is the subject of the, that we're talking about right now, we're talking about force before frequency. If your puppy is, is, getting, is nipping on you as much as they always have for the last several weeks, but you can say, you know what? It's not as hard. There's not as many marks. There's not as many punctures or scrapes, not as many red marks. They're recovering faster. They're turning it around right away when I say, ouch, then you are moving in the right direction. That is the proper progression. Uh, and it's, you know, Adina, you're right. It's hard for people because that's how humans are wired. You know, we want results right now. You know, mm-hmm. that's why people drop out of their gym memberships after a couple of weeks and 
they, uh, you know, they drop hobbies that, you know, oh, I'm going to take a painting class. And like the first couple paintings are terrible. And they're like, well, I, this just isn't going to work. I'm like, that's just, that's just not how it works. You know? So you said, uh, I did this 30 times and didn't work. And I'm like, great. Good job on those 30 times. Talk to me after you've added a couple of zeros to that. Yeah. That's a challenge. Yeah. You oh, know, it you is. Don't, you don't expect that when you read the puppy books. You think, well, I did it a few times and my puppy's still doing whatever behavior. Ah, so right. my puppy's broken. <laughs> right. And right. It, just, it just takes a long time. Well, you know, sometimes too, I have to tell people, they're like, I just can't, I can't do it. And I'm like, then where? It's temporary. Wear gardening gloves when you play with your puppy. Wear thick clothes when you play with your puppy. Cry out like the gloves and the clothes are your skin. Uh, if you have to, what you got to do. But I promise you, <laughs> the results will be worth it. <laughs> that makes me laugh because every time I go to meet someone's new puppy, I wear jeans just in case. <laughs> I'm yep. like, I don't want to get hurt. It's yep. going to bite me somehow. Yep. Well, the other big problem that a lot of people complain about, whether it's, you know, teenage puppies or adult dogs, is jumping up on people to greet them. Yeah. And a lot of people kind of, when they try to address this, they try to get their guests to to do obedience, as in like, okay, guest, you have to stand this way and you have to ignore, you have to do all this stuff right. to train my dog. And I think right. that's asking a lot of people, a lot of people who are your guests and don't know anything about dog training. Um, how do you approach teaching dogs to not jump on people? Well, um, that's a big one. We're going to have yeah. to unpack that one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I think the more, you know, you or your listeners kind of look at my work, I, I'm really big at kind of always trying to look at the dog's entire universe. So I think that we tend to look at jumping as an isolated thing. Like, how do I deal with the jumping? And mm -hmm. you should have some direct approaches. This is how you deal with jumping. But you got to understand that there's tons of other things in the dog's universe that are informing this behavior. You know, it's not just, just the jumping. So what do we do for jumping? Well, okay, so we do, uh, you know, the things that they... It, recommend online? Do we step away real quickly? Do we turn our back? Do we put our hands behind our back or in our pockets or things like that? Yeah, those work. But the other half of the equation is just like you said with the puppy biting, like the feedback has to be fast. It has to be instantaneous and it has to give them feedback on what's right. So if you turn your back and the dog stops jumping and then you ignore it, you're more interesting when the dog is jumping on you. So you turn your back the dog stops. You have to immediately activate. Hey, yeah, great job. Thank you. Now I'll pet you. Mm -hmm. The dog may jump again. Sure. But it's intensity before frequency. Get that dog to stop. First, they're kangaroo punching you in the chest. And then they're hitting you in the thighs. And then they're sitting on your feet. And then they're bunny hopping in front of you. And then it's practically nothing. And you can see them learning to self-restrain. So, Speed of feedback is really the key with all of those things. But like I said, you have to think in terms of the dog's entire universe. So do you have a jumping problem? You probably have an impulse control problem in general. Mm -hmm. So teach things like leave it, take it, drop it, weights and stays at barriers and thresholds, work on your loose leash walking. I mean, those are all things that develop impulse control as a character trait that informs your jumping. 
Yeah. And, and their foundational background stuff that isn't going to make a magical difference right away, but whoa, is it going to be effective long-term? <laughs> right. Exactly. Long-term. That's exactly right. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. And then, you know, if you have people over, uh, I think, I think when we tend to give strangers or guests, even, you know, like a handful of treats and a, and a pile of instructions, I don't think that's necessarily wrong. I just don't think it's very efficient, you know? Mm -hmm. So I work with my dog so that my dog is engaged with me and takes direction from me and has good owner confidence uh, and trust between us. So how come I'm not the one giving my dog directions and treats when strangers or guests are around, you know, that just mm -hmm. boggles my mind, you know? So I tell my, my, my students, I'm like, don't give treats to everybody. You're the one giving out the reward. You're the one giving direction. Your dog does it right. You step in and you go, hey, yeah, that was great. That's how I want it to look when you meet so-and-so. And the dog's like, oh, really? Then you keep your engagement high with your dog. You know, your dog is deferring to you. All the awesome things in their universe come from you, mm -hmm. not strangers. Uh, so, you know, if you have people over to work on your jumping, like all they got to do is just stand there with their hands in their pockets until you tell them otherwise. It's easy. <laughs> yeah, totally. And I'm a, I'm a, as a non-trainer, I'm a big fan of teaching um, incompatible behaviors, like really working on sit and stay or go to your place, you know, and, and refining those so that they work in a lot of environments. And then, then it's easy, <laughs> you yeah. know, otherwise yeah. keep your dog on a leash or put it behind a gate until, so it doesn't have a chance to constantly practice the thing you don't want them to do. Right. Right. So I totally agree with you on that, Adina. I would add one small little addendum to that. Yeah. Uh, so teaching the incompatible behaviors and working on those in situations is uh, absolutely fabulous advice, right? That's why every trainer tells you to do that. You're absolutely right. Uh, I would suggest from my experience, though, that sometimes you want to disconnect that obedience module mm -hmm. and save it for later when your dog's intensity has dropped. So take jumping, for example. If, my, if I'm working with a dog that's totally jazzed up, overstimulated, like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. Then if I'm trying to insert those obedience pieces, I'm just fighting you know i'm trying to bottle water out of a fire hose <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you know so sometimes i just disconnect that obedience thing and i'm like the criteria right now is four on the floor i don't care what else you're you're doing i'll give mm -hmm. you a pass on barking even uh i don't care what you're doing as long as right now the order of the minute is stop jumping and we work on that and then when the intensity decreases and I get better buy-in in those highly stimulating situations. Usually it doesn't take very long. Then you reintroduce, reinsert that obedience component. And it's much easier now to add that layer to it because now your dog's invested. So, uh, you know, take like uh, when I work with a reactive dog, you know, people are like, well, my previous trainer told me to make the dog sit. I'm like, you're just compressing the spring. Get the dog to reduce their reaction first and then you can see it as soon as that dog looks at a dog and then turns around and looks at their owner it's stupendously easy then to ask him to sit because they're engaged you mm -hmm. know yeah so sometimes i say put those things on the back burner and just build climb that ladder a little more slowly so that your dog isn't wrong they're just uh, more opportunities to be right about something even if it's just stupendously simple I think I agree. I think I'm just looking at it from a different perspective. I don't, 
I don't disagree. In that moment, if your dog is so jazzed up and wired, they're not going to listen. Absolutely. Um, I'm thinking of it more in the long term. Like you're this working on sit stay now when your dog can barely sit stay for a minute in your house with nothing going on isn't going to help at all when the birds come over. It's just not. But thinking of it in the long term and like, okay, first we're going to do it in the house and then we're going to do it outside and then we're going to do it with people 30 yards away. So more of the like gradual progression and proofing kind of so that eventually they're going to listen to that. So easily when people come, you know, the doorbell is going to be like, go to a place command. Um, So we have, let's see how much time we've got. We've got a few minutes. If you want to talk a little bit about your, what proofing is, what does it mean? Why is it important? Um, Mm -hmm. you know, how does that pertain to the average pet owner? Sure. That's, I mean, that's a fantastic segue because I mean, essentially proving, proofing is just what you just described there. You know, it's kind of taking a a behavior uh, beyond just the mechanical execution of a request. Uh, You know, so let's take, uh, let's take a sit stay, for example. Uh, So ideally, you know, we practice that in uh, a, a neutral low distraction environment, like, I don't know, your living room or the kitchen or something like that. And all you're doing is teaching just the mechanical execution of the request. You're teaching your dog, this is what a sit-stay looks like. And they go, okay, got it. Mm-hmm. You get these phenomenal sit-stays. But, you know, there's an old saying, if you train your dog in the kitchen, you get a great kitchen dog. <laughs> <You know>? Yes. <laughs> so, and, and dogs are very, very context specific. They don't generalize worth a crap, you know? So you get that sit, stay in the kitchen and then you go on the back porch and you're like, okay, sit, stay. And they're like, what does that mean? (laughs) Exactly. You're like, oh, sweetheart. Okay. Let's review. So you don't have to start from scratch, but you have to lower your criteria. If you get, if you get a, if you get a three minute sit, stay in your kitchen and you can step out of sight, you will not get a three minute sit, stay where you can step out of sight on the back porch. You start with a 10 second sit, stay toe to toe, and then you mm-hmm. go to 30 seconds, 10 feet away or whatever you're, you know, however you're working that ladder. And you just gradually show the dog that sit stays look the same in all contact and around things happening, you know, mm-hmm. after you've done that for a while, your dog is sit staying all sorts of places, you know, then you go to the dog park and you don't go in the dog park, but maybe right. you stand outside the dog park where they go, oh, look at all those dogs out there. And I'm like, I know we're going to go in in a few minutes, but I'm just going to need you to do a quick little sit, stay out here 20 yards away from the dogs. Can you do that for me? And they're like, oh my God. I'm like, okay, okay. I'm going to try my best. And then they do it. And you're like, oh, super, let's go play. Uh-huh. Beautiful. Uh, so that's, that's essentially the proofing process, whatever your behaviors are. Yeah. And I think that's the piece that's missing for the average pet owner. They think they're frustrated that their dog doesn't listen or, oh, my dog knows how to do this. They're just being stubborn. And no, they might be, but most likely they just have jumped from zero to 60 in intensity and of distractions. And they just, it's just flew by them. Whereas if they, you know, built up to that. And, and when I was working with um, my current dog, she's almost 10 years old and I was working on, you know, polite greetings. We did it on leash and my in-laws were visiting and I had them ring the bell and that's it. And 
she had to hold her sit stay. And then later I had them just walk by past her. And then later I had them stop next to her, but not touch her. And then later pat her quickly on the head and walk away. So like little tiny steps. And if your dog is kind of freaking out at the next step, then you've got to think, is there a baby step in between (laughs) (laughs) that we can find success? Because you want to have more success than failures, even though. Break it down into smaller steps. Yep. Yeah. Okay. I would say too, you know, that uh, on a side note there, that I would say that's probably the number one thing the number one reason why people struggle with loose leash walking, because, mm. you know, uh, you take a dog who doesn't know how to interpret leash information into a highly distracting environment. You know, that's like taking a brand new driver, like, Hey, I'm 15. I got my learner's permit. Great. Let's get on the freeway. <laughs> yes. You know, no, we start in the parking lot where you can screw up and make mistakes without being a danger to yourself or anybody else. Mm-hmm. You know, so, uh, you got to take walk. You got to teach the mechanical aspect. You got to build the motivation to hang out next to you and teach them it's in their best interest. And then you go living room porch, living room porch, porch, driveway, porch, driveway, driveway, sidewalk, driveway, sidewalk, 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 you know, three houses down, five houses back, three, you know, and eventually you're around the block and the dog's like, oh, this is how we walk, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, most people get a new dog or a puppy, they slap a leash on it, and then they go, let's go for a walk around the neighborhood. And- <laughs> It's pandemonium. (laughs) Right, right. Oh, man, absolutely. Well, Ian, this has been so much fun. I've really enjoyed talking with you. And I think our listeners have learned quite a bit. Um, I think you have some online classes. Is that right? Yep. Uh, We have an online basic training course uh, that's got about four hours of content. It is everything and more I would teach in a basic class in person. Uh, and then if you feel like you've got some of that stuff under your belt, uh, we also have a three hour loose leash walking course, uh, that just laser focuses on just building good loose leash walking in public. Um, and my courses are really designed for the pet dog. Um, so the average dog owner, you know, that doesn't want to do formal obedience and stuff like that, just like, Hey man, I just, I just want a buddy I can take into public. Then, uh, I would say these are probably the courses you're looking for. And we'll link to those in our show notes. And your business is called Simpatico Dog Training and Paw, Potico, spelled like a dog's paw. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> we'll link to all that. Um, any last words or anything that you think, you know, you wish you, we mentioned briefly? Uh, no, I, I just thank you for the opportunity to be able to share this uh, with people and to just kind of discuss it and, uh, you know, I've really enjoyed talking to you guys. I would just, uh, I would say listeners, dear listeners, just like I say all the time, keep learning and keep practicing and, uh, you know, don't let yourselves get discouraged. Easier said than done, but, uh, you know, just keep climbing the hill with your buddy. Yeah, absolutely. It's a fun thing to do together. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Awesome. Well, have a great weekend. You too. Thanks so much, Adina. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Doodle Kisses podcast. If you have any ideas or recommendations for future topics or guests, send me an email at admin at doodlekisses.com. That's A-D-M-I-N at doodlekisses.com. 
Also, subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or however you get your podcasts so you can have every episode ready to listen to as soon as it comes out. The show notes will link you to our GoFundMe page, as well as links to some of the things we discussed in today's episode. Talk to you next time on the next episode of the Doodle Kisses podcast.